I'm Paul Brady, regional editor at The Cork Report, and this is my podcast, A Northern Wine Odyssey, part of The Cork Report Podcast Network. To listen, search Cork Report in Google or your podcast app of choice. Before we get into this episode, a quick note to wineries about the Finger Lakes International Wine Competition. Wineries, please consider submitting entries to the Finger Lakes International Wine and Spirits Competition, which is without question for me the most important competition out there. This competition is a fundraiser for Camp Good Days. Camp Good Days provides summer camping programs on the beautiful shores of Cuca Lake in Branchport, New York, as well as year-round recreational and support activities in the Rochester, Buffalo, Ithaca, and Syracuse, New York areas for children with cancer, sickle cell anemia, and their entire families. An unfortunate reality is that sickle cell anemia occurs most frequently in people of African and Hispanic descent. Camp Good Days is one of the very few, perhaps the only, program that supports children that have the full-blown disease with the required medical professionals that must be present. At Camp Good Days, participants have the opportunity to regain some of what cancer has taken away from them. While a vast majority of the children who attend reside in New York, Camp Good Days has no geographical boundaries and accepts children from all 50 states and all over the world. No child with cancer is ever turned away. Programs are provided at no cost to participants, and 90-plus percent of funds raised go directly to programs. I want to thank my friend and head judge of the competition, Bob Medill, for getting me involved and pushing hard to keep the message alive year-round and striving to make sure that this competition is a safe, socially distanced rethinking of wine competitions. Anyone can, can donate at any time. Just visit fliwc-cgd.com. That's fliwc-cgd.com to make your donation. Today on the podcast, Long Island winemaker Anthony Napa, of his namesake as well as Raphael Wines. Here we go. Thank you, as always, to Dave Miller for our opening and closing music. Check him out at DaveMillerGuitar.com or wherever you purchase or stream music. Joining me today, winemaker Anthony Napa of Anthony Napa and Raphael out on the North Fork of Long Island. What's up, man? How are you? I'm doing all right. You know, hanging in there. It's a... Nice, uh, nice rainy day for us to record today. I think we uh, we we got you inside, kept you out of the vineyard. Perfect. I uh, always have a little extra free time when it's raining out. So, <laughs> um, so wh- tell me, where did you grow up? I grew up in um, Massachusetts. Um, so I uh, grew up in Westboro, is where I went to high school. But uh, my dad is a uh, an immigrant 
Um, so I'm on that side, I'm a first generation, uh, American and, um, and yeah, so, uh, where's Westboro, uh, like in relation to Boston or something like that? It's in central, more central mass, but still a suburb of, of Boston. And my dad's family, uh, came over, uh, from Italy and they were mostly like in East Boston and where all the, a lot of the Italians were. And, um, is that where the, like the Italian village area of Boston is, which is a, if I remember a nice, no, the, north, the, the North part. end is the North end is literally like downtown Boston. Um, but that's like a pretty, um, you know, it's like a historic district. It's a pretty expensive place. Like more of the immigrants were moving into like East Boston, which is, um, you know, where like the airport is and stuff. And then most of the, you know, the Irish were moving into like South Boston. So, okay. And then, uh, did you remain in, in Massachusetts through all the way through high school and, and, or into university? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I mean, my dad, like I said, my dad was an immigrant and he came over like, you know, the, the, the typical immigrant story. He came over when he was like 14. Um, like his dad, his dad and my oldest uncle came over first and they, you know, by themselves and started working to raise money to bring the rest of the family over. And it's, you know, very similar story than the guys that we work with now coming from, you know, Guatemala and different places. It's a very similar immigrant story where he came over when he was like 14 and he didn't, you know, he started working. He didn't go to high school even. He didn't graduate high school. He didn't, you know, so, you know, his view, his worldview was very different than growing up as an American. So when I finished high school, there was no, my dad was not into education. There was no like expectation for me to go, go to college. If anything, there was like a negative uh, expectation towards college as opposed to just like working. And, um, and, and we grew up pretty, pretty poor. So there was no money and there was never really a conversation. So I didn't go to college right away. Long story short, I, I ended up, uh, I say I worked through high school and stuff. I saved money and I ended up um, backpacking Europe. And um, so I, everyone else went to college and I left and I just went to, and th- you know, this a long time ago. So this was before cell phones and, you know, the internet was pretty new and email was pretty sparse. So like it was a pretty different world um, back then. I'm curious. So what, uh, what sorts of odd jobs did you have throughout high school? I did like, I, well, I worked on farms, um, did some of that. <clears throat> I enjoyed working outside and I did like some construction stuff like that. Of course I did uh, service, you know, like industry thing as a, a young person as well. Um, but I did a lot of, you know, construction, painting and roofing and stuff like that. And I know that eventually you did go to college. Cause if I recall, you have a master's, um, in, uh, plant science, et cetera. But before we get into that, uh, I'm sort of curious, there, there probably was wine around as you were growing up. Yeah, there was, I mean, my dad is not a big drinker and my family, my, my Italian side of the family, both sides of my family are not big drinkers. There was always wine around at like holidays and stuff, but to be honest, I don't really remember it. Um, you know, you know, there'll be like Asti Spumanti for like Christmas and New Year's and stuff like that. Um, but not a big, like drinking family, not a big, uh, wine focused family. So my, my, like I said, when I went to Europe, um, as a young teenager after high school, that was kind of my first introduction to, to wine. And, and I, I did 
I spent a lot of time in Eastern Europe, and this was like right after kind of communism fell and all those countries were being opened up. So they were super cheap to travel in. And I had a URL pass and stuff. And then I spent a bunch of time in a, a couple months in Italy, like visiting family and stuff. And that was kind of the first introduction I had to to wine as part of like a real, you know, I was old enough to drink then too. So I was into drinking, but, um, but it, that, was, that was the real beginning of my focus towards like wine and food, wine always being at the table, you know, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, wine always being part of the meal, wine being part of like the, the, the whole culture of, of being there in Italy. And what part of Italy was this? Um, my dad's from, uh, uh, just outside of Avellino. So in uh, Campania, um, just outside of, uh, Naples. Um, so that's where like the, the Napa name comes from. Um, but we, but we had family in Rome and different places too that I visited, but I spent most of the time down South and it's pretty rural down there. So what were the wines like that you were drinking uh, at the table? Were they very rustic local wines, or were, were there any varieties in particular that you recall? Well, I mean, I I, I did go back, like fast forward a, a, a long. We can talk about it in a minute, but um, I did go back and work in in Italy as well. So, but at, at that time, it was pretty darn rustic. You know, it's like one of those things where everyone's making wine in their basement and. Everyone's got their homebrew that they want you to try, and I, I didn't really have a palate that 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 I was, you know, conscious of at that point. So, um, yeah, and then and then you know, in rural Italy, there's all these like liquor stores, I guess, wine shops, and enotex and stuff too. But where you just walk in and they have these, you know, big carboys, and you just buy wine by the liter or whatever. You bring like a two liter bottle of Coke empty and fill it up with wine for a couple euro well not euros there it was lira back then for a couple thousand lira you can get like and you just bring it back home and that's what you're drinking for the day and it's just some some other guy's homebrew so it was pretty pretty darn rustic i don't remember anything ever coming out of a bottle that was corked um you know it's but it was italy back then so every 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 meal had a bottle of coca-cola on the table and a bottle of wine on the table and that was pretty much it i love that i mean I, I wish we could somehow get in, create a culture like that over here on the East Coast. Uh, it's, al- it's always been just in the forefront of my thinking is that we need to, we need to make good use out of some of these, uh, you know, red grapes in particular that we're able to grow easily enough in the climate here, and and make some nice rustic table wines that are affordable for people. I, I would, if I if I could work every day uh, on something, it, it would be pushing toward that. So. Uh, I, I it's it's a story that you so often hear, especially for, with um, in regards to families from Italy. So I think uh, it, it just seems like the the most formidable way to sort of come up appreciating wine. That wine is is for the table. It's not you know meant to be some super fruit forward cocktail. Yeah, I agree with you. It's um, <clears throat> it was never like a question. It was never like. A consideration it was just it's just it's, it's food it's part of food it's part of the meal it's part of culture it's not something that is a control a controlled substance it's not something that is you know uh, a special occasion it's just something that is just part of of everyday life and so at some point you did end up in college let's uh let's talk about how, how you transitioned into that world 
Yeah, sure. I came. Well, I'll, I'll, do, I'll run through it fast. I mean, I came. I, I came back, and I was broke. I mean, I, I traveled through Europe for a while, and then I actually ended up going to Australia, and New Zealand too. Because long story, but some friends were moving there and stuff like that, so I traveled there. Came back, I was broke, and I ended up. Um, I went to. I ended up applying to Worcester State, um, just because. <clears throat> You know, I felt like I had to do something and I, I ended up going for free because I had really good grades and no money. And, you know, I'm a big proponent of like free college education, like in that kind of even just for state schools or, or whatever, like SUNY schools or whatever, because in the, looking back now, that was a huge turning point in my life. Like I could have gone and just worked, which is fine, too. I mean, it's fine to get into a trade. I probably would have made more money in a trade. Um, but um, but that moment of being able to go to college and, and being able to afford it uh, was, you know, life changing. So then I only stayed there for a year. It was a kind of a I was in Worcester, so it was kind of a not not a high point in my life. But uh, I ended up transferring to UMass Amherst, the Stockbridge School of Agriculture. So like I said, I was working and I had worked on farms and stuff. And I I just decided that I wanted to work outside. I didn't want to work in an office. I didn't. I didn't want to work in a restaurant and I, I wanted to work with my hands. I wanted to like make things, grow things. And um, so I, I went to uh, UMass and, uh, and Amherst, which is the, the biggest one. And that's the original one. So that's where the, the ag school is. And, I want you know, to stop you there because how, how did you come to decide that you wanted to be involved in agriculture? Because I know you said you worked uh, various jobs uh, throughout high school and things. Sounds like you're pretty handy. Sounds like you're a hard worker. Uh, but what, what was it that attracted you to agriculture and, and growing things? Um, I just, I I mean, I I worked on some, you know, I, I worked on some farms and stuff and I just enjoyed working outside, working with my hands. And it wasn't obviously for the money. I mean, my dad was kind of pissed. He was like, I, you know, I came all the way over here to get off the farm and now you're going to go back to the farm. Like, you know, that's not what he wanted me to do. Um, I mean, I just, you know, like I said, it wasn't for the money. It was just, I wanted to do something else that was more, uh, that had a skill that I could like, you know, you know, make something, grow something. And and I was really good at, I, I mean, I always did really well at school and even without trying and I was extremely good at um you know science and 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 math and stuff i was very i I don't know if i have some sort of learning disability but i i was not dyslexia or anything but i was i've always been really bad with english and and on languages in general because of that but um so uh you know like on the sats i you know ace the math section and bomb the english section you know um but i i just even now i i I have thank God for computers and spell check and stuff. But I, I've always had a real struggle with, with, um, you know, English and stuff. So uh, I wanted to do common. something. Yeah. I want to do something in the sciences and I, and I, and I really enjoyed plant science and chemistry and, and, and that type of thing. And, and I just, uh, I don't know if I really thought that there was a career there. I, I don't know if I just wanted to go to school for the school experience. Um, but I, but, I was also a little bit older because I didn't go to school right away. So when I got to college, when I got to UMass, I was already, you know, 21. I was already a little bit older than other people. And I, I was paying for it for myself. You know, I didn't have any financial help. So I was more focused on, on actually doing it. 
And then how did you decide to to take that skill set that you were that you were developing in college and and apply it to wine? When did that happen? Well, I mean, <clears throat> I'll fast forward a little bit quicker. I did um I was working while I was in college because I I had to pay for it myself. So I was doing like construction like painting and 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 roofing and stuff. I had my own like company. Um so I was able to make decent amount of money fast. Uh, just doing my own work and then um and when i graduated in 2000 from stockbridge i just you know i i had this i guess what happened first was i i i went to um semester at sea which was at the university of pittsburgh um as a study abroad program in the fall of 2000 and i had saved up a bunch of money from working and i had already paid off all my college loans at that point which was like huge i didn't have a lot but uh, it's not like it is today um, but I was like doing construct, like painting and roofing houses. I could make good money. I could make, you know, two grand a week, even back then, which was a lot. Um, so I could save up and, and paid off my loans. I had a bunch of money saved up. So I went on semester C, which was on a, a ship that goes around the world with study abroad program. And we stopped at like 10 different countries. And, and that was a whole awesome, interesting experience, kind of like as part of like continuing my travel bug, I guess I was already like interested in traveling. And um, and at, at, at some point I thought um, that thinking about continuing with agriculture, I mean, obviously there's no money in agriculture and I kind of knew that. And I even the working on the small farms and stuff. So this idea of of studying something more specific like grapes, like viticulture, kind of came through around that that point, um, and that's when I kind of started looking at uh, viticulture schools. And is that when uh, you went to the Southern Hemisphere? Yeah, I, I, after I got back from semester at sea, I um, I continued working to save more money. And um, right right after that, like I had my own company, so we were doing like a lot of painting, and I had some employees and stuff, and, and roofing. So I was making good money, and it was hard to like think about going back right away. Uh, but then what happened was uh, September 11th, and um, basically like all the work dried up. Um, Gotcha. So can you hear me? I mean, it's it's interesting. To, yeah, it's it's interesting to me because like the your sort of formative days, the way you're describing them. I mean, it's it's really sort of perfect to then take that and go into wine. I mean, you're you're somebody who is naturally talented in math, science, and you got a lot of construction and building chops. I mean, these are yeah. all very very desirable skills to have on a vineyard and in a winery. Yeah, especially a small one. I mean, it, like I said, none of this was like really, you know, life just happens. You know, you follow you it, it, the path like takes you, you know, you don't really plan ahead. So um, I didn't like necessarily think about this direction. My family doesn't come from a vineyard necessarily background. So, um, so, so yeah, at that point, uh, well, well, while I was at semester at sea, I, we stopped in South Africa and I, uh, took some time and went over to Stellenbosch and I toured the the university there. And at the time it was, you know, it was, I mean, it was post most, you know, pretty recently post apartheid and it was, 
pretty rough down there but it was so so crazy cheap like i could have gotten a degree down there for nothing and moved there so i toured the school and, and i was interested in, in that and um and then um i i got back um i looked into uc davis like cornell really didn't have a program like a real program back then it was really just davis and and it was crazy expensive um for an out-of-state person anyway it's just it was you know, college prices. So then I started looking overseas, places like I could have gone to Europe, but I was looking at places that spoke English. So that's how I ended up looking at New Zealand. And so did you work in a vineyard? Did you do a harvest or a stage or anything like that prior, you know, of any of any substance prior to, uh, you know, day one of classes in New Zealand? Um, no, no. I, um, but I was looking for, yeah, I mean, I was looking for more like the vineyard side of things. So I ended up, you know, going to school in New Zealand was much more affordable. The U S dollar was very strong back then. Um, so like my money like was worth, it was like 40 cents to the dollar. So my money went a lot farther and I was able to go to school even as an, out of, uh, an international student you know, for a third of the price it would have cost me to go to Davis. Um, so that was a huge, you know, factor for me. Plus I had visited New Zealand before, uh, back in, uh, you know, um, 1996 when I was traveling for the first time and, and just like New Zealand is just the most amazing place. I mean, it's just gorgeous. It's, it's unbelievable. Like anyone would want to go live there for, you know, a bunch of years. It's just, it's it's awesome. So it was it was a no brainer for me, and and I just you know showed up there, um, and uh, and yeah started classes and and was more focused on the, the viticulture side at that point. So let's go from uh, your time in New Zealand. Let's let's stay there um, and progress to how you ended up in Long Island. I mean, and and, and I think it's it's always worth noting that. Australia and New Zealand, it almost seems like to make wine in New York, it's almost like a rite of passage that you have to go and, and do some time there. I mean, so many winemakers that end up in New York and, and maybe everywhere now have spent time in Australia and New Zealand. So take me from, from New Zealand and what you became really interested in there in terms of viticulture and winemaking and, uh, and, and progress uh, toward Long Island. Yeah, I mean, I was obviously New Zealand education is very different than Davis or Australia. Like Davis, you know, California and Australia ha can have like a much more direct connection. New Zealand is very much of a cool climate viticulture. So in a cool climate, and I came from Massachusetts agriculture background, so I was more of a cool climate agriculture background anyway. Um, so there was a lot of connections there between, you know, New Zealand and say New York anyway. But um, but I did that. I did a bunch of Northern Hemisphere. I I, I worked while I was in school as well um, at, at in New Zealand, and I and I did a bunch of before while I was there and after I was finished with school. I did a bunch of Northern Southern Hemisphere vintages. Um, so I had come back and forth, and and you're right. A lot of people do it, and I think they should a hundred percent. Like I would give that advice to any young winemaker and there's a lot of reasons for it there's a lot of great reasons to go to new zealand um or even australia 
you know, um, and I would tell anyone to do that if you're trying to get into this business. I mean, one of the big reasons is it's the opposite season. So you can go to the Southern Hemisphere and they speak English. So you could go to obviously Argentina, Chile and stuff too. Um, but the uh, another big reason that people go there is they need the labor and they also pay really well. I mean, in Australia right now, I think the minimum wage is it's like $18.50 an hour or something. New Zealand's a little, and the dollar is almost equal. I mean, you can go to, you can go to Australia right now and make really good money, you know? Um, that's why people from even Europe and stuff go and travel and, and do vintages there. Um, you can work a vintage, work six days a week for like three or four months and, and walk away with, you know, and a lot of times your room and board's included when you take these jobs and walk away with 10 or 15 grand. And then you have two months off to travel through, you know, Southeast Asia or whatever, which I did a couple of times. And then you end up back in Europe or North America and do vintage again. It's a pretty fun lifestyle. Um, so, so you're down there, you have, you have an Italian upbringing, you have a background in agriculture, you're going to school for viticulture and wine. What were you drinking while you were down there? Sauv Blanc. That's, that's what we were drinking. Sauv Blanc, baby. That's, uh, uh, that, that's certainly important out on Long Island nowadays too. Um, is yeah. that, um, did you really sort of embrace the, the benchmark grapes in New Zealand when you were there? Is that what occupied most of your drinking? Um, you know, <clears throat> there is obviously a lot of different wines and we drank a lot of beer of course too, but, um, there's not a lot of access to imported wines in New Zealand. Like there's not a lot of access to especially higher end stuff. There's definitely access to a bunch of different Australian stuff, but there's not a lot of like, you walk into a liquor store in New Zealand, you don't have access to a lot of European stuff like we would here. So, and the other thing is in at the university, a lot of the work we were doing, a lot of the research and stuff was all on Sauv Blanc. I mean, it, this was 20 years ago. So, you know, uh, obviously New Zealand was still big back then, but it's it's a monster now. It's so much bigger now. And all the a lot of the money and the research was focused on Sauv Blanc and like growing it better, making it better, you know, all the flavor profiles and all that stuff. So there was a lot of focus on it. Pinot Noir is pretty important down there too. Were you working with that as well? Yes, definitely. I mean, there was a lot of Pinot. Uh, we drank a lot of Pinot work, but again, um, a lot of the times the Pinots were pretty expensive, especially in in New Zealand dollars. So. Um, you know, we weren't, we were college kids. We weren't really buying $50 bottles of Pinot all the time. Um, a lot of it was coming out of central Otago and, um, and it was smaller production, but a lot of that, a lot of Pinot is being grown in Marlboro now. And a lot of Pinot is being grown on the North Island too. So Pinot was always, you know, really big. Did you get out into the vineyard and get your hands on Pinot Noir? In New Zealand, like, were you, were you, did you, do you have some experience with the farming of that grape down there? I farmed, well, we had a research vineyard, of course, at the university and a lot of different stuff going on there. And then we had a research winery and I actually lived on a part of the campus. It was on a place called Farm Road and we had like our own little flats and it was right next to the winery. So I spent a lot of time in the winery. And like I said, when I went there, I went there thinking more on the viticulture side. And then when I got there, I really found that I had a, a, you know, we test our palates and stuff when we're in college and we do a lot of different, you know, things like that. I found I had a really 
good palate, a really acute sense of smell. And I really started to get into the winemaking side. So then I spent a lot of time, you know, in the winery. So we were working directly in the, in, at, the, at the university winery. You can just make wine, do whatever you want, you know. So we were just in class. Some people in class were just making some wine in class. But we were also with a bunch of people just trying all kinds of stuff, making just making small batches of all kinds of stuff. A lot of stuff was coming out of the research vineyard that no one was going to use anyway. But but also a lot of the kids I went to school with there were coming from like families that owned vineyards in New Zealand um, and, and owned wineries and stuff. These are the kids who were going to school for winemaking there. So a lot of them I was was pretty, pretty uh, close with. And we would pick grapes and bring them down and make a bunch of different fun stuff. But uh, I, I did work at a couple different places. I worked Harvest while I was in school. And then um, one summer down there, I, wor- I went up to uh, Wahiki Island, right outside of uh, Auckland, and I worked at uh, Goldwater at their home vineyard. So I worked in the vineyard for that summer up there. Um, and then, uh, you know, after that, I was mostly just in the started to work in just in the wineries. And you mentioned that you did some harvests in the Northern Hemisphere as well. Where did you do those prior to ending up full-time out on Long Island? Um, I came back. Um, I did a harvest at uh, Westport Rivers in Massachusetts, which is a champagne house. I don't know if you know them. Um, but they're, they make, they've been around for like 30 years. They make awesome champagne. Um, and that was after I had already been away you know, for a while. So I came to do a harvest up, up here in new England. I wanted to learn uh, champagne making anyway, but, um, you know, but I also wanted to like, I hadn't been home in years, so I wanted to be close to home so I could do a harvest up here and, and visit people and, and be close to home. And that's kind of one of the first times I kind of started. I, I visited long Island at that point with the winemaker um, Eric Fry was a consultant at Westport Rivers as well. Um, so that's how I met him. Um, this, you know, this was a long time ago. And then I c- came to Long Island with Eric and uh, Bill, the owner, and, uh, you know, tasted through Long Island wines and toured Long Island with them just during harvest, just for fun. And that, that I met a bunch of people out here at that point, which I didn't really know who they were at that point. But it's kind of, an, it's just funny because it was like, we went to, you know, we went to Bidell with Kip. We went to um, you know, with Greg Gove over at, uh, at Connick Bay and obviously Eric over at Lens. Um, and, uh, and we went over to, uh, uh, the Masoods as well at Pamanok during that trip. And that was kind of one of my first introductions to, to Long Island wine. I was pretty impressed. Um, and, and after that I started, I didn't spend much time you know, at, at, uh, in new England after that again, but I started tasting as much wine as I could across the Eastern seaboard from like all of the finger lakes down to like Virginia and just whatever I could get my hands on just to over the next couple of years, just to have a benchmark for, for what was going on on the East coast. Where were the grapes coming from, uh, when you were working at, uh, at that sparkling house in Massachusetts? They grow everything there on site. Yeah, it's uh, you know, it's all. I mean, it's mostly Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, and they have um, some other stuff and uh, you know, little little stuff. Um, but yeah, it's right on the coast, right you know, right on the Rhode Island border. So it's it's technically in the 
the the Eastern New England AVA, and that would include like all of like the vineyards going through um, the coastal Rhode Island and into coastal Connecticut. So is it, a, is, it a, is it a very similar? Uh, is are the growing conditions similar to Long Island? Similar, but colder and a little bit shorter of a season. Um, but yeah, similar. So they're not growing like Merlot and, you know, they're not even really getting that, that warm. Mm -hmm. I got to get my hands on some of those wines. Sounds interesting. Um, and then, so when, uh, what, what year is this? When was this? I don't know. Um, maybe like 2004 ish. Okay. So around 2004, 2005 is this is when you're starting to sort of comprehensively taste wines from up and down the East coast. Yeah. Because I mean, I just, I was just interested in, I wasn't really that, I had been to California before and I obviously know California wines and I just wasn't that interested in, in, in moving to California. I was, I mean, I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I kind of thought I kind of wanted to be on the East Coast. I'm an East Coaster. You know, it's everything's everyone's a little weird over there on the West Coast. So um, so when I left, actually, when I left New Zealand for good, you know, I traveled um, through Southeast, Southeast Asia for a couple months again. And then I moved to Italy and I got a job um, in Campania. Um, uh at uh, a place called Mustili and they had recently just built a new winery and they were interested in like interns and like just learning new techniques and stuff like that. So they were really open-minded. Um, and, uh, we grew, we grew, uh, made a lot. There was some red grapes, like, like, like French grapes, but it was mostly Falangina. We were really heavy on Falangina, made a lot of it. And we, uh, Ionico, uh, a, uh, a ton of Ionico, and some other stuff like so. We had some Greco di Tufo and and um, Piano, um, but so it was a really really interesting place. It was a small like medieval town, and you know they were like the biggest employers in town, and it was uh, you know it was an awesome experience. I have similar feelings about the West Coast. I love to visit, but even when I'm there, it's like no no one's saying, you know what, Paul, you should really move out here. We we want you on the team out here. I'm I'm quite certain they're happy that uh that I that I stay east. <laughs> Sounds like yeah, you have yeah. similar feelings. Well, I have many friends, you know, from high school or from home that moved out there and never came home. Like they love it, but you know, but to me it's just the land. Yeah, of me too. And nuts, I hate it so. when they move out there. I'm like, I don't like losing <laughs> people to the West Coast. Yeah. Um, so when I left uh let me see, when I left uh well, I'll try to speed this up. When I left uh Italy, I came back and I actually um got a, a job as a winemaker in uh, Massachusetts again through the Westport Rivers people, but it was a brand new winery that we were building. And the whole thing, I, so I started building the winery, making the wine and the whole thing kind of, it was underfunded. It was a mess. So I, I, I uh, so yeah, so I left after one vintage and, uh, and then I went, I, I was, didn't know what I wanted to do. So I went and it was winter time. So I went back to New Zealand, just did harvest there. Cause I was, oh, might as well just keep doing harvest and it, it's fun traveling. And then when I came back, I actually applied for some jobs um 
on Long Island, and and then I applied for some jobs in California, and I and I got a job in California that was like a really well-paying job and a good deal. So I went uh, and when I got back from New Zealand that year, I went to California. This was two thousand and six vintage. I'm sorry, I always try to think of things as vintages because that's how you remember where you were. Um, and I did it. So I did that vintage there in California and I continued to kind of look for other jobs over there. But, you know, again, I wasn't in love with staying in California for many reasons. And um, then I, that's when I applied for a job uh, at Shin and for the vintage of 2007 uh, on Long Island. Okay, so we arrive to your time at Shin, which is something I'm interested in hearing about. When when I'm I moved to New York City from Michigan in 2008, and those were some of the first New York wines that I saw on the shelves of wine and liquor stores. And I was I was a wine drinker by that time for sure. Uh, I had not yet entered the industry, but. Um, had some familiarity with wines in particular from Ontario, Canada, and uh, had gotten to know some people in the industry there. So they they made me aware of New York wines and that as since I was moving there, I, I should seek them out. And um, so, yeah, I, I think maybe even the first New York wine that I had, it could have been a could have been a Chardonnay from Shin. But I can there was a, a shop in the West Village that. Uh, that was near where I lived, and and I remember at least a couple SKUs from from Shin early on in the in the from the two thousand uh, probably six or seven vintage because I moved in 08. So quite possibly those wines were yours. Yeah, definitely. I so oh oh seven was my first vintage. Um, the winery was being built; it was brand new. Uh, Juan had done a vintage with them for oh six. Um, but the, uh, the winery was, was still being put together. All the wines prior to that were either made at Wolfer or at Lenz. So there was a couple of years at Wolfer, a couple of years at Lenz. And then when I got there, we were building the winery. So I had to buy a lot of equipment and build the winery and, and, and kind of, uh, cause prior to that, they weren't really making any wine. Um, it was all just custom winemaking. Um, so yeah, uh, but then at 2007 was a little rough, except for the fact that it was you know, the most amazing quality vintage. Um, and so I, you know, I got there and the vintage was awesome. The grapes were awesome. And I was just like, this is amazing. <laughs> like everything is like this growing grapes on Long Island. So easy. And the, the quality is so great. I couldn't believe it. Um, little did I know. <laughs> Fast forward to 2011. Yeah. Well, even, even, you know, eight and nine were rough. You know, 10 was great. I mean, I mean, it's just, it's an interesting place, Long Island. I mean, um, and that's part of the reason why I ended up here. I, I wanted to be on the East Coast, and I, I truly feel that the best wines on the East Coast are, are here on Long Island. Um, so Shin had, had a reputation for, for good farming in their vineyards. So could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean... You know, I think I think part, I've always been a huge environmentalist and a huge proponent of you know organic and all these and all these things. And we could talk about that for like a whole podcast. But um, um, you know, they were kind of talking the talk in that direction, and that's part of what attracted me to to their vineyard in the first place. 
um, you know, you know, the people who know them know, know them and know, you know, I don't need to say anything about that, but, um, you know, some of it was smoke and mirror. Some of it was more just marketing than anything else, but they weren't doing anything out of the ordinary. They were just, you know, just started to compost and things like this, which are, you know, normal practice for any farm or anyone who was educated in farming that, you know, simple things like that. Um, but, you know, I think they were trying and I started to push them in that direction. Like if we're going to, you can't just talk the talk. You got to walk the walk, you know? Yeah. And okay. So how many vintages did you do at Shin? I did, um, four. I left after the 2010 vintage. Okay. And during this time, you were also making some wine for yourself, for your own label. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, uh, like I said, they did have a great vintage. They were very focused. Um, I'm a great vineyard. Uh, They were very focused. Uh, they, we had a lot of, you know, we had a a high level of, uh, hand labor. So we were able to do a lot more. We only had 20 acres, you know, so we were able to do a lot, a lot more focused in the vineyard, which was great, uh, for, for trying to be more sustainable. And it's also great for quality. Um, when I started at Shin in 2007, I always had the idea of making my own wine. It wasn't, I never thought it would be a business or anything. I just thought it would, you know, something fun and, and like on my own terms, I can just do whatever I want. Um, instead of when you work for someone, it's a kind of a different story. Like they, you, you have production goals and you have, and then when you work in a big winery, it's even worse. You have like focus groups telling you what the wines need to taste like before the grapes are even picked, you know? So it's, it's a whole nother animal, but you know, with a small vineyard and, and, you know, it's a lot more focused and I can, and I wanted to do my own thing. So when I started at Shin, you know, the only things I asked for was if I could make my own wine and if I could bring my dog to work. Um, and I didn't have a dog yet. I was just going to get one. Um, so, uh, yeah, I started making in 2007 vintage. Uh, I did a couple tons of Pinot Noir and I just, I love Pinot Noir. And I thought, um, you know, Pinot Noir is very transparent of a grape variety. So you can really learn a lot about a place when you're working with it. So I thought that was a good place to start. What have you learned about Pinot Noir on Long Island? Because it's, there is some, but it's never really taken off there as a household grape, like in the way that Merlot or Sauvignon Blanc or even Cap Franc or Chardonnay has. It's incredibly hard to grow and everywhere, but it's incredibly hard to grow on Long Island. I mean, I just get super lucky. I get there got to to Long Island in 2007 it was an awesome vintage perfect fall weather and and I and a bunch of tons of awesome pinot showed up and I made a really nice wine out of it contracted for the grapes the next year 2008 and it was a disaster we had to pick it early and and I didn't know what to do with it so I ended up pressing it um made, made it into a white wine uh, or rosé if you if you will and we called it anomaly and just because it was a white wine made from red grapes. And this was 2008. So this was before rosé was a thing. This was before, I mean, at this point, you couldn't sell dry rosé to save your life. So I didn't want to call it a rosé. So we called it a white Pinot Noir. And the name was Anomaly. And it just, it's the name stuck and the branding worked. And like, it just took off. People loved that wine. It was like, it, it just exploded. 
Um, Did it have any color at all? In the beginning, it really didn't because I was really careful about making sure that it didn't because if we're going to call it a white wine, um, you know, I, I didn't really want any color. Uh, so we removed the color too with some carbon. So I, that allowed it to like be really, um, uh, really light. And and a lot of people, th- this was, again, this is before Rosé. So most restaurants had a white wine section and a red wine section. They had wines by the glass and white or red. So I got people to put on a white Pinot Noir in in the white wine section by the glass and people... And it, it just sold really well because people are like, what is this? What do you mean white Pinot? What is this? You know, Pinot Noir and the white wine section. Um, so, yeah, it, it just it did really well. It exploded and it was just, you know, dumb luck. I mean, the, the, the grapes weren't good and I had to figure out something to do with it. And, and we put the marketing together and it worked. Um, but again, maybe we were just catching the rosé wave anyway that I didn't know about that was coming um, with that with that product. But um but it was a really nice wine on its own, you know, on its own merits. So, um, so yeah, that worked out. And so were, were there, was there a stint at another winery before arriving to Raphael? No, um, there's a gap there because, you know, I, I wasn't happy at Shin and I was making my own wines and then my wine started to to do well uh, on their own merits. And that didn't make um, my former boss very happy because he didn't want any attention away from, from him. Um, yeah, it, ne- but, it never does. It's so funny how so many small wineries and labels get started that way. Cause they, you know, they made some wine under, under the roof of their boss and, and all of a sudden those wines were better. And then the next day you're fired. It's such a common story. Yeah, but I would if I mean if I can if I, if anyone's listening who is a winery owner, not a winemaker, I would make the opposite argument that like having a winemaker who makes their own wine with their own money and understands the business of the wine making process is much more of an advantage for the winery owner than it is to like maybe have them, you know, get some recognition because. You know, as, as an employee and, and a winemaker, you're trying to build your own personal brand, too. I'm trying to sell myself for my next job, maybe, or whatever, or build a reputation around, you know, so having my own wines helps with that. But as a winery owner, if you have an employee who really understands the wine business, really understands branding, marketing, labeling, really understands even just buying, like saving money on packaging and all the, the details of like being in business, I think that's far more valuable than any like, And also having a winemaker that has good reputation what's wrong with that you know even for totally. their own I mean, wine, like running a you know? running a business within a business you know and you're the winemaker of uh, i can 100 percent see the value in that yeah but i do see a lot of wine winery owners don't see the value in that say no you can definitely not do that here you know and i i i think that's that's kind of silly i think um you know having winemakers that have experience in the, on the business side of things is, is probably more invaluable than anything else yeah. And so you you continue to make wines under your own name uh, and you're doing that now at Raphael where you're also the full-time winemaker and that's a sizable operation there. Yes, it is. I mean, it's uh, it's not it's not too bad. It's not too big. Nothing's too big on Long Island, so it's 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 manageable. Um 
Yeah. So, so yeah, just going back one second, I, we opened our tasting room in 2011 in the, and, and we didn't have enough wine to do our own tasting room. So we did it as a kind of like a co-op, even though it wasn't, a, it didn't end up that way. It just ended up as our tasting room. And we were selling other people's wines, other winemakers who had small labels, who just had a couple hundred cases of this, a couple hundred cases of that. And that was the winemaker studio in Peconic. And so when I left Shin, I just started making my own wine and I just started we had our tasting room now. So everything I sold before that was all, all wholesale. Now I was moving into like retail. And um, and I made my wine at premium for two years, moved my winemaking from Shin to premium. And then, and then, so I had two years off without a job. And to be honest, it's, it's not easy to survive out here without a full-time job. And one big piece of that is um, health insurance in this, day and age it's extremely hard to survive um so then uh rafael called me and they had a opportunity so i took the job in uh i guess it was 2000 early early 2013 but what my first harvest would have been 2013 at rafael and it's it's a big place we've got 60 acres now um and you know we do any i mean we max out at around 200 and 75 tons it depends on the breakdown between whites and reds because there's a, a a tank space difference between whites and reds but um so we can do we can max out around you know 15 to eighteen thousand cases a year in production so i want to i want to talk both about your own wines and the wines uh from rafael as they relate to viticulture in general on long island so your wines, I've I've had, I've enjoyed. They're delicious. They have lots of energy. Your tasting room is fun out in the North Fork. So everyone this summer who's uh, planning trips out there should definitely stop by. And let's let's talk about your your process for your own wines. You you are able to work with a number of different grapes, so you have a diverse lineup: uh, reds, whites, rosés, sparkling. Um, Give us uh, sort of just because I because I know you're you like to do things uh, in a very practical and in a way such that you're working with the with what the vintage gives you. So take us through sort of start to finish. I don't know. Pick any one of your wines, maybe um, what uh, whatever it is that you like the most right now. Well, we uh, yeah, that's a hard one. I mean, that we you know we make, like you said we make a lot of different wines, and I think that's part of the fun and 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 uh of having my own brand because i can do we could be opportunistic and buy random grape varieties we can try different things we can make 50 or 100 cases of this just once or be or in a really good vintage like you were talking about pinot noir 2007 the first vintage great vintage for pinot noir but but we didn't make another pinot noir again until 2014 because even though i was paying attention to the pinot noirs out here it was never uh, the weather and stuff didn't come together again to the point where we could make a really nice, you know, red reserve red wine Pinot Noir. I mean, some people try, but it's just really hard with something like Pinot where it's so humid here. And if you get weather, rain in the in September or, diff, you know, different or it doesn't get cold enough at night, you know, then you just can't get it ripened before it rots. And that's why people use most of Pinot out here for sparkling um, in most years. Um, you know, so like something like Pinot, that's that's where the limitations are. And then we, I made another Pinot in last year, 2019. So we made three Pinots in 
15 years or whatever. I mean, it's, or 12 years, 13 years. So, I mean, that's, it's, that's, you know, the way it is for something like that. Um, the wine, all the wines we make the same. I mean, I, I, I bring my winemaking to Raphael. So, you know, we, we make everything without additives with everything's done very naturally, no yeast, no, no yeast nutrient, no, you know, enzymes, tannins, nothing. The only thing we ever add to to the wines um, are is sulfur. Um, none of the reds are filtered. Um, so everything is made pretty traditionally, um, but also, you know, with the Raphael wines, it's a big winery. So we're making things a little bit more crowd, you know, a little bit more mainstream, a little bit more, um, everything's made very clean. Um, we don't, you know, we don't, I don't have any tolerance for faults, but, um, you know, the wines are for a broader audience with Raphael. It's a different um animal and then with my brand i can do stuff that's a little more geeky fun and we've we've done a lot of like different little things a little bit more um trying different things all the time and when they when they work uh, we do a separate bottling when they don't work i can always sell it bulk or blend it out at Raphael or whatever so you know with my wines um it's you know we can do a lot more different fun different experiments and try different grape varieties and be opportunistic and just get a couple tons of some grape variety I've never made before and, and see what happens. Yeah. Um, and in terms of viticulture on Long Island, so you have been kind of going back and forth for uh, even longer than you've been making wine out there. Like you mentioned early on, spending some time with Eric Fry, who before he retired was certainly one of the most tenured uh, winemakers in all of New York State, and something that I've come to to really embrace about wines from Long Island are particularly the red wines and how amazingly they age. So, just to to give any listener a little historical perspective, viticulture on Long Island gets going in the seventies when the Hargrave family plants wines or plants grapes. And I, I myself have never tasted any wines from that era, but I've heard accounts of other people who have, even recently. Um, uh, a well-known sommelier older than me who I know got his hands on, on a bottling. I, I, I believe it was from 1979, and he it was a Cabernet or a Cabernet-based blend, and he told me that the wine was absolutely outstanding. So... I, I know that there is this beautiful ability to age red wine in particular on Long Island. You and I have even uh, uh, tasted some of some wines with 10 plus years of age on them together in a lunch that when I was with the New York Wine and Grape Foundation, I consider this one of the coolest events I was ever a part of organizing, which was library red wines from Long Island. So we had about 10 producers, including one from the Hudson Valley and the the criteria was red wine with 10 plus years of age on it. And th this, again, I, I just can't talk about this event enough, which we then repeated the following year. Uh, in particular, I think the wine from Raphael was a 1996 or 1997 Merlot. Do you remember which? It I would have, if it was, it would have been 1997. That would have been the first wine but that wouldn't have been from our own vintage vineyard it would have been purchased grapes and i don't know the details because they're the first grapes from our vineyard 
we're 99, but I do know that some of those other bottles are still in our library at Raphael. So, and like I've tasted a lot of them. So, um, yeah, yeah. So that I'm not exactly sure what vineyard it's from or, 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 I mean, obviously Rich would have made it, but I don't know anything else beyond, beyond that. Rich, uh, which Rich? Because there's, I think there's might be Rich Olson Olsen Harbrick, oh, okay. who was the winemaker at the time. Yeah. So current winemaker at Bedell, he would have made that wine. Okay. Um, I do remember the wine. I probably have some notes on it somewhere. It was very good. Um, and so I, I think you would agree with me. Um, opportunities like that to to get a comprehensive lineup of lots of different red wines from different grapes, different blends, different vineyards, North Fork, South Fork. Uh, was was very very telling, and I think that a big part of the narrative for Long Island absolutely should be that these red wines can age gracefully with a a, a structure and an acidity and a rusticity definitely more akin to Europe than to really any other New World region that I can think of, and I know it's. You know, we probably shouldn't even say old world, new world anymore. It's probably easier to just talk more about like warm climate, cold climate uh, in, in that sense. But I'm just curious to if you can sort of harness your remembrance of that day and uh, of the other times that you've been able to drink some of these red wines in particular from Long Island with that kind of age on it. Yeah, I mean, I've done that many times, uh, drinking some old vintages. Of, of, and, and next time you're out, we'll have to do it. I, in my cellar here at my house, I have uh, I have quite a bunch of old Long Island stuff that I've acquired uh, over the years. I've got a bunch of stuff from. I obviously have everything, you know, stuff that I've made, um, but I also have stuff from the '80s, like from Bedell and James Port, and you know, some random Gracina stuff and. Um, and obviously we have everything at Raphael in our library at Raphael that we can, we can taste through, but you know, these wines do, I'll be there. Yeah. Deal. Yeah. You sold (laughs) these, these wines do age unbelievably. I mean, and I think that's, and, and I think that's part of what makes them interesting. And obviously, um, you know, I've done a bunch of these tastings, um, the way I feel, let me just back up. The way I feel about Cab Sauv is not, I don't think it's a great grape from our region. And I feel, I feel about it in the same way I kind of feel about Pinot Noir, where it has to be a really warm year. It has to be like a perfect conditions late into the fall um, to get the real kind of richness out of it. And then we get that out of Merlot every year. So Merlot is kind of like an easy benchmark for, for Long Island. But for Cab Sauv, it's much harder. Is it two or out of it? Uh, every 10 years there's three out of 10 years and we can make that kind of quality with that wine and and at Raphael we're to be fair we're in a very cool site um, overall which I I think is a benefit but it's not a benefit for making a reserve cab sub so we don't make those every year Um, but other places on Long Island like farther west like into kind of into Riverhead like Roanoke and and um um Pominock and some of those vineyards, it's it's much warmer there. They're picking grapes like a week or two ahead of us sometimes. So something like Cab Sauv, they could probably get more often. Um, but to 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 the point about aging, I have done these tastings where mostly people are keeping Cab Sauvs when on a really good year. So um, you know some of these really warm years in the '80s or early two uh, thousands and stuff. 
I find that some, some of these cab sobs with 10 or 20 years of age um, show better than some of these Merlots with like 20 years of age. So it's pretty amazing that, that these wines just age so well. Um, you know, so, so I have, the, I guess I just have these, this, 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 you know, pulling uh, the, the, these opposite feelings about Cab Sauv where it's like, I've had some of these just 20, 25 year old cabs from Long Island that just age, you know, in, in a, ta- a tasting with a bunch of these old wines, that's the wine that, that shows, you know, just really shines. Um, but overall Merlot just, we can get these really ripe flavors every year. And we get this, this natural balance here on Long Island where, um, where we don't have to add, you know, any added, we don't have to add acid to our wines. We don't have to add tannins or enzymes or, or anything. And they can always wild ferment. They always go through mallow wild. It's never a problem um, going through mallow. I mean, and never stuck ferments. I, the only time I've ever had a stuck ferment on Long Island is when I added yeast. Um, so it's, it's just uh, this natural chemistry balance that we get where we get wines and the really nice pH range and and they ripen with really ripe flavors and ripe tannins and 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 it all kind of the stars kind of align um where all of that happens at at, at the same moment and then that's when we pick it we can just make these beautiful wines that that are just real expressive and 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 in the, in the case of red wines really age worthy so let's um let's stick with Merlot as as a, a subject just to get into um a bit more granular detail about viticulture and and you know what why don't we throw in Cabernet Franc to talk about a little bit too um, because that's sort of all the rage right now throughout all of New York State um, in terms of the ageability of these wines can you give uh give me some of your thoughts on how the viticulture should ideally be approached to keep this freshness and to keep the expression of these sites in, in an optimal way. Yeah, I think, I mean, part of why Merlot does so well is I think there's been this historic focus on it. You know, if you talk to anyone out here, any winemaker, they can tell you, you know, which clones and which rootstocks of Merlot they have and where they're planted and what, and how, how they're different flavor wise and, and how they blend them and which, you know, which, you know, which uh, programs we use the different um, clones for and the different blocks for, but do you ask anyone what clone of Cap Franc or Cap Sauv they have? And they don't know, you know, um, I think there's just been this historical focus on Merlot and, and in the vineyard, there's been a focus on um, obviously the plants need to be in balance and, and you need to be a good grower. So that's, that's like, we'll start the conversation there. Um, but there's been a focus on, you know, canopy management and controlling the yields, um, to, to be able to ripen fully at the right moment with the right chemistry. And when you get to that point, um, in that moment of harvest where you're making those those harvest decisions, I mean, that's what harvest is all about making trying to make the right decision and watching the weather and, and trying to, you know, capture the whole season in one moment. you know, Merlot just is just something that that we can do that with, you know, consistently nine, nine, ten times out of ten, we can do it. Um, so that's 
and and then with that kind of you know backbone of acidity correct ph and really nice ripe tannins we don't really get these even in our cab sauvignon cab francs we really don't get these like green flavors in the same way that you'll even get them coming out of you know california or something in a while we we don't you don't really ever taste you know fresh cut grass or mint or anything eucalyptus whatever you want to call it that those traditional kind of where the grapes are ripening too fast you know the 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 flavors are getting there but the tannins aren't ripening fast enough and stuff and then they have to pick them with that just doesn't happen here um one you know one thing i uh, so with those ripe flavors and those ripe tannins, our wines, and then a backbone of acidity, our wines just can age, you know, for a really long time. And that's, you know, that's a huge benefit to any region. The wines are in balance before we even start the game. We're not like trying to manipulate them back into balance. Um, and even with Cap Franc, I love Cap Franc. We make a, uh, a basically like an unoaked style Cap Franc. And I've been doing that for about 10 years now. Uh, we were doing that back even on Long Island. Everyone was kind of making Cab Franc as if it was Cab Sauv uh, or a Bordeaux style, aged in oak, a couple of years, percentage new oak. Um, but I was doing a no oak, very fresh style. And, and now at Raphael, all of our estate wines are made that way. The Merlot, Malbec, Cab Franc, and this kind of medium bodied, you know, lower lower alcohol anyway, you know, fresh style. And those wines just go great out here. Most of our wines sell in the summer. You know, we're a summer vacation place. And these kind of medium-bodied, fresher red wines uh, just do really great. So that's kind of the opposite of what you were just talking about, the ageability. As a winemaker, we decide, starting in the vineyard, is this wine that we're making from this block going to be, you know, a lighter, fresher wine? Or is it going to be a wine that is, you know, put in oak and then bottled down the road and then aged for 20 years. It's not just, it, does, it just doesn't happen. We choose from the beginning based on the viticulture, based on the crop level, based on the flavor profile, how we pick it, which direction the grapes are going to go. It's not just like every wine can age. Um, you know, we choose some of our wines going in, that, in this direction and some of them go in that lighter style. Um, fruit forward, you can drink it kind of in that old school Italian way that you're talking about, you know, you can just drink it cold. You can drink it with seafood in the summer. You can have it with barbecue, you know, real approachable. You have worked with, uh, the, as far as I know, the only certified organic vineyard out on Long Island. Uh, I'm, I'm curious as to what you think the, the best way to, to keep sustainable vineyard practices going out on Long Island will be in, in the future with climate change and everything like that. I mean, I just like, I, I love all types of wines, but I, I'm certainly not um, dogmatic about any particular practice. I just think that if you, when you have a region that has sites that make site expressive wines that people like, then we should continue to make wine there in the most responsible way possible regardless of certifications or, or, you know, however you identify, what do you think is uh, the future for that sort of sustainable practice to keep these wines fresh and alive? Yeah. Um, there's like 10 questions wrapped up in that question. So, um, um, 
you know, climate change is an issue. I, I can get back to that. I mean, we made, you know, going back to the organic thing, we made organic wines um, because the opportunity presented itself. And so we went through the process of, of making the wines themselves organic. And part of it was just me kind of, you know, people ever since I was at Shin and people have been, you know, telling me that you can't make organic wine out here. You can't make organic wine out here. And usually when people tell me something's impossible, I'm the type of person who's like, okay, challenge accepted. Let's do it. Um, so that was more of the, the impetus there. Like, let's, let's see what we can do. Let's push the envelope in this direction. Um, it's extremely difficult. Um, the sustainable side of things is incredibly important. Um, we need to be uh, good stewards of the land. We need to be good neighbors. We need to be good employers. Um, you know, we need to take care of our community. And and I think that um, anytime there's a focus on the environment, I'm 100% on board because, you know, as farmers, we work directly with the environment anyway. It's it's something that, that we are so, like, closely focused on and i have been my entire life my entire career because that's what studying farm agriculture is um but climate change is a whole nother like you know uh, it's just a whole nother uh thing uh unpredictable thing that's thrown at us and um it's hard for me to predict anything there i i can tell you from my experience on long island that you know climate change has it hasn't, you know, we, we've definitely had hotter summers and in some cases colder winters than the historical data shows. So like we've definitely, some of these extremes seem to be more accentuated, but we've also had later springs and I'm not sure what that means, but, um, you know, even today, whatever it is, the 15th of April, we've had years where we could start seeing bud break, you know, this week, um, historically. But now, in the last five years or more, we we haven't had a bud break before you know May May first. So, if anything, our whole season is being pushed back. You know, like uh, uh, May is more like April. You know, June is more like May, um, and then we go straight into the into summer. You know, but that doesn't give us extra weeks on the other end. That doesn't give us more time on in in October to have more ripening. So climate change is affecting us in a, in, a, in a different way that we might not have anticipated. Just this idea that like everything's getting warmer so we can, you know, we can all go plant Zinfandel, like that's just not going to happen. And, and in fact, at Raphael, you know, we've done a lot of replanting and, um, you know, we've done a lot of grafting and stuff like that. Um, but but we, we just planted a bunch of, a few years ago, we planted a bunch of Malbec. We, Malbec was something that one of the first ripening uh, red grapes that we have. Um, you don't see it much upstate in it or anything like that because it's not winter hardy at all. It barely gets to the winter. And even here we can, we can have winter damage or, or, or lose, lose vines, especially if it doesn't harden off well enough. So Malbec was, you know, there's a little bit of a round and I think the Malbecs out here are, are super interesting and unique, um, because they're more of a European style as opposed to let's say South American Malbec. And they're just really fun, fresh, fruit-forward wines. People love them. Um, so we planted another five acres of Malbec. So I guess in that sense, climate change has pushed us towards planting something that ripens earlier 
as opposed to planting something that ripens later. And in in a way, I feel like it's condensed our season just a little bit. Even though the season could be hotter overall, the same growing degree days, but we're losing some some space there in our season. So, you know, climate change could have an effect on us that is completely un, unpredictable and unforeseen. And um, at this point, I feel like we we might not just be getting hotter. And that even that that's kind of the the general thinking. And just to to sort of finish on um, uh, getting a little bit granular in the vineyard on that subject, what is the what is the sort of first step toward um, very environmentally friendly farming methods? Would it be something like eliminating herbicides, doing more handwork in the vineyards? And I mean, I, I know that there are nowadays some synthetic products that are, that are, um, you know, even less harmful to uh, the land than some, than certain organic products. Um, what can you say in terms of a, a very hands-on practical approach to the vineyard um, that leans into responsibility as for the environment and also still practical such that you're gonna you're gonna get good grapes yeah i mean obviously it's still business so we still need to bring in a crop and that's part of the problem with going you know all the way in on something like well i guess painting yourself into a corner you know you need to be able to be flexible um you know i think i think in some senses we're 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 almost there though we're pretty close to being be able to be organic um you know even at Raphael, we we've moved away from herbicides so we can just either mow or cultivate and we do a combination depending on the issues out there we need to be flexible it can't just be one solution but if, if we if we need to if we have a lot of weed pressure we can cultivate if we just want to mow we can mow so cutting out herbicides that's great um we've cut out uh, chemical fertilizers so we use we have a composting regime we get a lot of compost from a local duck farm which is great because that's like pretty pretty good stuff and we we do a lot of composting with horse uh manure too and and we spread compost we're about this week i think we're going to spread compost on um five acre we side dress we have a machine that side dresses over like just over the vines and we put it on thick, like, you know, three, four inches thick across, you know, four acres. It's a huge volume of compost. We also compost all of our own, obviously, uh, you know, grape must after we press it and stuff. So um, so we can get some potassium back in there. So, you know, between those two things, I think anyone on Long Island can cut out herbicide, you know, maybe not always. I mean, one year we brought in a bunch of purchase compost because we were seeing some nutritional def- deficiencies and we spread it. And inadvertently, we spread it a ton of weed seeds. So we had a huge weed problem. So we had to spray uh, an herbicide for the next two years just once just to kind of like knock that back so we could get back into our like. And then we we're like, okay, forget that. We'll just do our own. You know, we were trying to get ahead on the nutrition. But I mean, these are the decisions that I have to make. I mean, we're trying to like figure one problem out and causing another, you know. Um, so I think, yeah, anyone could cut out uh, herbicides and uh, chemical fertilizers it takes time it's not something you do you don't just switch over on a dime you know you have to you know slowly get your your processes up 
the biggest thing for us on Long Island, though, is, you know, it's it's hot and humid here. We're surrounded by water on three sides. And and, um, you know, it's it's we're on the coast. I mean, it's it's humid. And, you know, fungicides are a huge problem for the most part. We figured out ways around it, uh, particularly in the case of, um, you know, powdery mildew, which is which can be a problem uh, mostly on the leaves and early early on in the spring. And with um, uh, sulfur works on that. Uh, a lot of people have cut sulfur out. Um, I don't like to spray. We don't spray it anywhere within two months of harvest because we don't want it coming in on the grapes. But um, in stylet oil, which is a certified organic, uh, you know, uh, mineral oil, is uh, will take care of, of powdery. So uh, the the one big thing that the one thing that we need is is for downy mildew, and that's something that is a huge problem for us. And there's really no organic option. Um, we can use copper or Bordeaux mix. We can do sulfur copper together. Um, but a lot of people don't want to use that at all or use it very, very minimally. And, and there's a lot of resistance that gets built up to it, too. So it's not a good idea. But, you know, we might use it once in a while, like once a year or, or something like that. Um, it's a very small, minimal application. Um, but yeah, that's that's if if there was one product out there that I could wish for, I would be wishing for something that was certified organic that um, that would affect downy mildew, and that would be huge for us. I mean, there's other issues that are not we're not able to control with chemicals like black rot or phomopsis or other chem, or other diseases. But for the most part, those are trunk diseases, and if you don't have them, you're you don't really, they don't spread very easily if you don't have them in your plant material or whatever. And if you do have a little bit of it, you can prune out of it. So for the most part, we figured out how to like manage that. Um, the, the, the only other thing that I can say uh, is, is insecticide. You know, uh, I, I, I keep bees at my house and they always die. And, and it's so frustrating. It's like one of the most frustrating things I do. Um, but you know, insecticides are a huge problem out here. People are spraying everywhere for ticks, like crazy, every lawn, they're all over the place. Um, and it's really, it's, it's, it's one of the things that really frustrates me. And in the vineyard, you know, we, we, for the most part, style it all will take care of a lot of the insect issues that we have, because it does affect mites and, and leaf hoppers and different things. And if we're using it anyway, and, and it's, it's having these additive benefits, um, but grape, grape berry moth has always been a problem um, for some vineyards, not all. And now we're getting into other things. Like we have this new fruit fly that can, I forget the name of it, but it, it can get directly into the fruit. And now people want to spray for fruit flies in the fall, like right on the grapes, like right before we're about to harvest them. I mean, that's crazy to me. So I don't want, I don't want to get into that, but I do see it. It's a huge problem. They'll just destroy your crop like at the last minute. So in the fall nowadays, when I used to pray for, you know, warm weather so we could get some extra ripening on these fruit, I'm praying for like it to be 40 degrees at night to kill the fruit flies so, so we can get some extra ripening on this fruit. Um, and then, uh, oh, this whole thing about spotted lanternfly coming in, that's a whole nother thing that we don't, you know, we're, we're going to have to deal with. So, you know, that's farming. You're always adjusting rolling with the punches figuring it out um you know insects are tough i i, I hate spraying insecticides insecticides are 
super dangerous, poisonous. They can they affect humans. They're neurotoxins. You know, insects are animals. We're animals. Um, you know, you're, you're trying to hit a flying insect with a with a your, your target is moving. I mean, it's a really difficult thing, and you're just throwing chemicals out there. So I would love to get you know away from insecticides everywhere, but it, it's a tough one. Well, I think, uh, you know, you've really sort of painted a very transparent and uh, sensible picture of what modern viticulture should look like. And for the most part does look like out on Long Island right now. And uh, I think um, the quality is there without question. And uh, I I can't wait to, to come back out. I didn't make it out last summer for obvious reasons, but um Really looking forward to, to coming out, and I'll definitely take you up on uh, tasting some library wines with you. And uh, definitely, I know, definitely, I, I know you guys are are, are going to have a, a busy summer because word is out uh, as to the quality of the wines. And um, if uh, there's been any silver lining to this last year, it's that people have uh, discovered how how great the the land and and the local agriculture in our own state is for maybe so many people for the first time. So thank you for, uh, for taking the time today and, um, and, and so clearly articulating uh, what's going on in terms of uh, quality viticulture and winemaking out there. Well, thank you, Paul. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Right on. Search for, a Northern Line Odyssey by searching Cork Report Podcast in Google or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you again to Dave Miller for providing our theme music. Check him out at DaveMillerGuitar.com or wherever you purchase your stream music. Thanks again, Anthony, and look forward to seeing you soon, brother. Thank you.